The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. I'm here with Iris Green at the Littlest Bake Shop. If you are watching on YouTube, you'll see that things are really different here. This is the cutest little cupcake bakery in Kansas City, in my estimation. It is just gorgeous. So we're here to radiate freedom because this bakery is a uh, gluten-free, vegan bake shop. Just really kind of unique here in Kansas City. So welcome, Iris. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming to talk to me. Iris made me a beautiful cup of rose tea. What do we have? Rose? It's rose with some lavender syrup, and it's got a little bit of hibiscus in it. So it's all flowers. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) All flowers, no caffeine. (laughs) That's wonderful. And, you know, you've been here for a while now, um, since, what, last May? Yeah, so we opened in the first weekend of May of Mm -hmm. last year. And you're dangerously close to my house. Well, good. (laughs) (laughs) And I've tasted so many of your flavors. You've got such unique flavors here. Yeah. So what's your what's say? Okay. So you this is a gluten free vegan bakery. Why did you decide to go that route? Um, Well, um, I'm gluten free and vegan myself. Um, I first started out doing pop-ups in this location in the previous uh, tenants who were here. So it was previously Pirate's Bone, and I used to do um, I used to do pop-ups here. I did like maybe three or four, um, and I started out just doing cupcakes. I've you know done all sorts of different kinds of baked goods, but cupcakes seemed like an easy and pretty thing that I could do that would be that would work well for a pop-up. Um, when they moved to a new location, the space was opening up. It was two blocks away from my house, and I thought, can I really transition what was a pop-up into a business? Right. Um, how viable could that be? And so I knew that starting out with like a basic product and knowing like I'm going to have this every weekend, but I can grow from here and do other things right. was sort of a good starting point. Um, and so I just sort of worked on perfecting like 
those as my basic thing. And then whenever I have free time, I kind of like make bagels or try different things like that. Gluten-free bagels. Oh, how awesome. Those are kind of dicey. I found them in the grocery store and you never know how good they're going to be. Well, you know, I grew up in New York, so like... A bagel is a very specific type of thing. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, like this last weekend, we did, you know, bagel and bagels and vegan cream cheese was like our lunch on Saturday. Um, and, you know, I, I made them and then I tasted them and I was like, yes, this is okay. So, <laughs> I them. so it's like, you know, with the cupcakes, I know that's a sure thing. I know they're going to be good. But with other things, it's kind of like, you know, it started out, I was getting a lot of people asking me to make cinnamon rolls. And that's a big Midwest thing. It is. So having grown up on like east and west coasts, I was like, okay, cinnamon rolls, whatever. But being out here, everybody was like, please make me cinnamon rolls. And I'm like, okay. And I, the first batch I did was terrible. And I thought they were inedible. Other people wanted to eat them, but not me. <laughs> and, then, and then I finally got the recipe right. And now like every Saturday at noon, I better have cinnamon rolls because there are people lined up waiting for them. Right. Um, and so I kind of let the business sort of evolve on its own. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, okay, we started with this, and that will always be the foundation of it. But I like sort of let it take its own life, you know. Right, and you make cakes as well. Yeah, so I get a lot of requests for cakes. I do them within reason. I mean, I've had people ask me about wedding cakes, and I kind of say no to that. Um, That's intense. <laughs> well, I say no for two reasons. One is because when I was reading about opening up a bakery, the number one thing people said was that there's burnout. You right. get tired. You don't want to maintain the business. So I try to do things that bring me joy, and I feel right. like doing wedding cake really stress me out. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is, because I am doing gluten-free and vegan cakes, um, from a structural perspective, if I want the cake to be moist, and I want it to have a light texture, creating massive cakes without any gluten in it, it's just not a very feasible thing. Right. Um, and so it's kind of like I could either give somebody a hard cake that would have a good structure or I can give them a nice cake and I can't do it any larger than a certain size. Right. Without it breaking. Without <laughs> yeah, yeah. falling apart. And yeah. usually with a wedding cake, you make the cake, you freeze it, and then you decorate it because yeah. it's such a process. But yeah, you'd have a brick. Yeah. So I just kind of, I'm like, you know, I've had people reach out and I'm like, no. But a lot of times those people will say, okay, well, can you do a mini cake and then we'll do cupcakes, you know? Because right. I meet a certain dietary need that yes. it's hard to meet. So if you've got a bride or a groom that needs that, then they're going to try to sort of figure out a way to make it work. But I try to tell them what I can do well. I don't right. want to offer them something that's not going to be good, you know? And do you, since you offer something that is so specific and so dietary, do you find people kind of seek you out? Like, what's your market like here? Um, I think it's varied. I get a lot of people that are just like, it's a nice day. You get a lot of people from the neighborhood that are walking right. over. Um, I get a fair amount of vegans that are coming in. Um, I'd say my, my biggest market, of course, is people that are gluten-free. Right. Um, but with that comes a lot of, oftentimes, being gluten-free also means you have additional food issues. And so a lot of times I'll get people who come in, they're not necessarily vegan, but they're gluten-free, dairy-free, or they're gluten-free, egg-free, or one person in their family is egg-free, and they're gluten-free. And It's kind of an easy way to sort of be like, okay, I know I can get stuff here. Or people who are like, oh, we have a work party, one person's gluten-free, somebody else is vegan, everybody can eat these, we'll just get this. Because um, it's an easy way to just accommodate everybody. Right. I do think I get people coming from pretty far away. We're open a limited number of hours. Um, and we get a lot of people who are like, 
you're the only place I could meet. <laughs> so, so it's like that's it's the worth option. It. We will yeah. work yeah. our schedule yeah. around you. So I definitely get, you know, I get all sorts of stuff. I get people who are coming from the neighborhood, and then I get people who are coming from pretty far away because this is what they can consume. Because it, because it is hard to find good gluten-free options. Mm -hmm. And when you add in dairy-free and egg-free, mm -hmm. it becomes even harder, especially when it's fresh. You can find yeah. things in the frozen section. At some, and you never know. It can be dicey sometimes. But yeah. to have reliable and yummy flavors, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What type of flavors do you like to do? Um, you know, I'm very... Uh, my name's Iris. My daughter's name is Fern. Our last names are Green. I'm very plant-oriented. Um, I'm really attracted to floral things. Right. Um, and I also try to think of my flavors in terms of like, for one, I want to be excited every weekend. So I'll have people that say to me, oh, well, what are you making next weekend? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm looking for things that are local. I'm looking for things that are seasonal. I'm looking for things that excite me. So it's not going to be the same week to week. Um, I have a few basics I'll always stick by. I'll always do the like chocolate with vanilla sprinkles and a cherry, those kind of things, right. you know, because you can always please a kid with that. Right. But so many of my customers don't have options when they go places. Yeah. For them to walk into a place and know that there's six different flavors and that they can try any one of them right. is really good for them. Like um, they get a choice? This is right. crazy. And so because of that, of course they do things that are seasonal. So if it's like the fall and the winter, I'm going to tend more towards those type of flavors, but I love doing things with like matcha and rose and lavender and um, spices. Orange flower. Yes, I use orange yes. flower in a lot of things. This last weekend I did an orange, did you try one of the orange flower, um, orange blossom with a saffron salted frosting? It was a while ago, a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, so I, I did that and it was like, that was really nice. It had, you know, you get all the different flowers from like the saffron to the orange blossom. Right. Um, and those are the kinds of things you're not finding anywhere and then being able to also make them gluten-free and vegan is just really fun for people. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I do, all my stuff is natural, so everything I'm looking for, anytime, like, you know, I'll put a lot of teas or coffees in my cakes. I do, like, Earl Grey cakes with, like, lavender and, and different things like that. But then I also try to have, like, I have some people that come in and they just want their vanilla vanilla. Right. Which, by the way, is flower. <laughs> it's an orchid. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so there's that, you know, and then, you know, this last weekend someone came in and she was like, I'm looking for pistachio, you know, and, and I've done pistachio and chocolate cakes and things like that. Um, you know, we've got, this weekend's going to be Valentine's Day, so, you know, I'll be preparing things that kind of fit within that, you know, within that sort of feeling, too. And you're doing something fun for Valentine's Day. Of course, this this episode is going to be out after Valentine's Day, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Darn it. It's okay. <laughs> but you're doing something special. Um, you know, I've really enjoyed doing sort of like little pop-up meals here as well, just to sort of complement what we already do. So most of what we have is desserts, right? So you can come in, you're always going to get a cupcake. But um, for Valentine's Day, we'll be doing a four-course dinner. Um, so whenever I do like the larger meals like that, I always require reservations. Um, but I had thought about it, and it started out with me as a chef being like, oh, it'd be really fun to do this hoity-toity menu. And then I went, well, you know, the problem is, number one, Valentine's Day is one of those days that, like, all the restaurants in town, like, supercharge for things. Right. And as somebody who's gluten-free and vegan, you're already dealing with, like, upcharges on everything anyways. Right. So I was like, no, I'm going to be reasonable about it. So I kind of backpedaled my menu and was like, what can I do that's, like, really nice, something you're not usually going to get, but will be, like, affordable? 
Because I really think that, like, while I'm not doing something that's cheap, I'm still trying to do things that are accessible. Mm-hmm. Because that's really important to me, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm doing, like, a, a lemon and garlic grilled artichoke. Then I'm doing a vinaigrette salad greens. And then I'm doing um, some brown rice manicotti stuffed with, a like, a vegan cheese filling and marinara sauce. And then the dessert will be a chocolate cake with cherry compote. And so I was like, there. And I'm doing that for $22 each per person. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, which, like, a lot of places you go in town and you'd be like, $50, 75 <laughs> You know? So I try to do those things so that people still have options. Yeah, that's um, a full meal. Yeah. Yeah, that's Absolutely. nice. Do you do that other times of the year? You said you Yeah, did yeah. I mean, like, you know, a couple weekends ago, I did um, chili with cornbread waffles as a lunch special. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, especially, like, when it's, like, near a holiday, I always like to kind of get a little inspired, you know, like, over, I think it was, like, Memorial Day weekend, they did, like, potato salad with barbecue soy curls and some greens, just different things like that, um, right. you know, just, like, I always try to make meals that can be takeaway or dine-in with yeah. limited seating, so I do get a lot of people who come in or taking things to go. Right. Um, last week, I had, it's like, a couple weeks ago, um, I produced an event called Kansas City Vegan Restaurant Week. Nice. Um, and so I had all of the vegan restaurants in Kansas City participating, and we were all doing, um, it was all to benefit the Kansas City Pig Rescue Network, and so we all donated 20% mm-hmm. of what we made on our individual night. So we, we started, like, slated it out so everybody did a different night. Um, and we all donated 20% to the pig rescue. Yeah. So I did, like, did like a menu that night that was kind of like a fixed menu as well, mm-hmm. so that people could come in and support the pig rescue and have a nice dinner. Oh, that, that, that was very popular. It was really fun. We had a packed house the whole night, and it was really nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, something that surprised me when you, we were talking earlier, that you've really got your chops as far as baking and cooking and nutrition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You went and got some additional training in nutrition. Yeah, so it's kind of funny. I think, like, anybody who becomes, like, gluten-free for medical reasons sort of suddenly becomes, like, a health expert because, like, suddenly... you have to. Yeah, you have to. You're, like, reading labels and having to know what things mean and what things that look like one thing or something else. And, um, you know, I already... So when I was in Los Angeles, I had opened up Green Center for Plant-Based Nutrition, and I was teaching... um, plant-based cooking courses there Um, and I did like it was like very affordable accessible courses we did like five to fifteen dollars for a class it was like really fun to do Um, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just coming from a place of like oh this is something I enjoy so I did the um, Cornell University has a plant-based nutrition program Um, and so I took that and I did that on a full scholarship so it was it was nice that I was able to do that it can be a little pricey, but it was a fun class to take. <laughs> so I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> when you're making these foods for people, that people who have serious medical conditions, right? right? Then you can you can educate them. For for example, I came in and I looked at your soy curls and I said, yeah, I avoid soy mm-hmm. for health reasons. And you said, no, that's really yeah. I said, well, you're not a plant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think unfortunately, you know, we we live in a society where. So much of our understanding of nutrition has been taught to us by lobbyists, right? And by industry, absolutely by commercials. Commercials. So you've you've got all of these like got milk campaigns, and you right. have, and especially being in the Midwest, I mean, <laughs> like nutrition is like 
at war in the Midwest. I mean, oh, yeah. right now you've got you've got people from the, like the meat industry and like the dairy industry going after how things are allowed to be labeled. Yeah, like you can't call plant-based milks milk. Right. It has to be beverage. Right. Like or it's going to be like soy beverage or whatever. It can't be milk. Um, you know, meats can't be labeled as meats if they're not coming from an animal, these types of things. But you also have to realize that, like, all of those, like, campaigns and all those things were being taught, like, where that information is or is originating from. Mm-hmm. And so much of that information is originating from those industries rather than actually from people who've, um, you know, studied those fields. <laughs> you know? Who've actually yeah. studied nutrition. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, what we talk about in the United States, and this is kind of a tangent, is, like, there's something called diseases of affluence. Oh, and right. diseases of affluence are diseases that affect societies that are rich. Mm-hmm. And essentially it has to do with the type of food that we have access to. Right. So when you go to countries where their diet is maybe more limited and all they're eating is, like, soy and sweet potatoes, mm-hmm. you've got very, very low incidence of cancer, heart disease, diabetes. And these types of things, because those are diseases of affluence. Those are diseases you're so rich that you're lucky to get. <laughs> you know? um, and so, you know, working in a, in a, it's interesting because while it's a bakery, I get a lot of people who come in who have certain dietary restrictions, right. who um, talk to me a lot about, like, why they got diagnosed, what things they avoid, what foods they like to eat, what they think they're supposed to eat. Um, and the reality is that, like, most doctors don't have any nutrition education. Right. There's a lot of people out there who are labeling themselves as experts in nutrition that have no education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're going to be seeking out that information, you need to be going to people who actually have degrees in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And that's not me. <laughs> I took a or program. Some but, study. but somebody right. who's done something. something yeah. Or something. Um, because a lot of people are going to somebody who's taken like a, a dietitian's course online rather than being like, oh, this person's an RD. They actually had to go through school. They actually had to like do these things. And they're taking these bits of advice from people who don't have the background and the education. And a lot of that information that they're getting is coming from lobbyists and from sources that benefit from you believing these things that aren't necessarily true. Um, and I think soy has been one of the big victims of that. Because phytoestrogen is not going to affect your body. Um, I say that within limitations because if you have thyroid issues, that's not always the case. Um, Because that is something different than estrogen. That's not the problem that's coming from soy for... Um, for thyroid. So I do I do know from a medical perspective that some people who have thyroid issues should reduce their soy intake, but that has nothing to do with estrogen. I see. Um, and people who, I often will get people who come in and say, oh, well, I'm, you know, my family has genetic history of breast cancer. Well, consuming soy is not going to increase your chances of getting breast cancer. <laughs> um, and as a matter of fact, like so many of these countries, so there's a, a fascinating book called The China Study. Interesting. Um, and so, um, in, there was like an emperor in China. He'd been diagnosed with cancer. And he asked them to go out and do a map, essentially, like an atlas of where cancer was occurring in the country. So they went out and they like mapped out where incidences of cancer were occurring. Well, he passed away. And then this atlas of like incidences of cancer was just sitting there. So some researchers from Cornell University, which has a really strong like nutrition and agriculture program, mm-hmm. yeah. they took this atlas and said, well, let's find out why. 
So then they started going back and researching it. And what they found was that areas of the country that didn't have exposure to Western diets had like no incidence of cancer, right? Because they weren't, they weren't exposed to meat and dairy and all of these things. And the places that had more exposure to Western diets have a higher incidence of diseases of affluence. And as we start to develop sort of like more global industries, more global economy, a lot of our dietary things have been going like more global, right? Right. So countries that used to have like much healthier populations are a lot less healthy because of the American influence that's being spread to those places. Absolutely. Now, so let me ask you this. Why do you think that there's such a prevalence of celiac and gluten sensitivity? Um, I think there's a couple things that are going on there. So, I mean, they've done, they've done studies that found that there is actually a higher incidence, right? It's not just that we're diagnosing at a higher degree. Right. It actually is occurring more. Um, so they went back to blood that they had taken from some, like, soldiers in the 1950s, and they tested all of it, and they found that there was a lower incidence of celiac than what's occurring now. But also, if you look at, like, trade agreements... United States is not allowed to export wheat from our country. Other countries won't take American wheat. Interesting. Um, and I, you know, and this is purely anecdotal, but I've heard from many, many sources that if you go to places like Europe and other countries, they have a, a there are some people. Right. And I wouldn't necessarily say it's celiac, but some people who are wheat sensitive or gluten sensitive right. can go to other countries and eat wheat in other countries. Yeah, I dabbled a little bit when I was I was a month in Europe earlier this or right. last year and dabbled a little bit and um, I remember when I used to live there like 20 years ago, you never saw anything that was marked gluten free, but now it's pretty accessible. Yeah, but also yeah. people are going to other countries and eating wheat and not having a problem. That's true because it's different wheat. So one of the things that I think is kind of interesting, and I'm not like a super expert in this, but I had read about how essentially when wheat gets bred. It starts out with like a certain number of chromosomes, mm -hmm. but instead of like, you know, when like two people have a kid, you like add the chromosomes and then you divide them, so the number of chromosomes each individual person has mm -hmm. should be the same. Right. And if that's not the case, that's when you end up with medical issues, right? right? So the wheat <laughs> adds. Oh, They don't add and divide. Oh, so the wheat that has been bred to be very resistant, to be, wheat is actually a very fragile crop. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's been bred to be a not fragile crop. Right. And there's a lot of components of that. I mean, now they're saying things like, oh, you know, maybe people don't actually have wheat sensitivity. Maybe they're having, like, glyphosate sensitivities or, you know, and I'd say, like, with the prevalence that I'm seeing it, it could be a myriad of things. You know, some people could be having sensitivities to the pesticides that are being put on it, and other people could be having other types of issues. Right. But it, genetically, the wheat of today is not the wheat of yesterday. That's the true. wheat that I ate as a kid mm -hmm. is genetically not the same as the wheat that I eat today. Right. I think that, like, that's one issue. I think the other thing is, like, I always compare it to, like, if somebody told you there was chocolate in as much stuff as there was wheat in, you'd be like, that's weird. Why would I be eating that much of that, right? Right. So I think in general, I'm not someone that's like, everyone should stop eating wheat. But I think that we should all be thinking about more diversification of grains in our diet. I think that's a good idea. Because it's like in starches, it's in makeup, it's in right. products, it's in your food, it's, it's, a, it's in spices to keep them from caking. It's in yes. so many things. And we're just consuming it all the time. All the time. 
that like I can't believe that that could be healthy for anyone to be consuming that much of okay. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So so by being like okay, well yeah, I'm gonna like my daughter. I don't want her to develop a gluten issue. Right. So I try to make sure she gets exposed to it. So I have like her grandparents feed her things occasionally that have wheat in them. But she gets a very like diversified grain diet because she's getting a lot of like brown rice flour, sorghum flour, teff flour in the things that she's eating mm -hmm. because she's eating all the things I'm eating plus she's getting a little bit of wheat. And I think that's a far superior type of dietary choice. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's just more diversity, mm -hmm. right? Now, you had an interesting journey to find out that you are gluten intolerant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was that about? Um, you know, well, my whole life I had issues mm -hmm. that were always diagnosed symptomatically. They say that it takes an average of eight years for a person to be diagnosed with celiac. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the problem is that a celiac diagnosis also means that you have to be actively consuming wheat at the time that you're tested. Oh, right. Which means there's a lot of doctors who won't test people for celiac as well because you have somebody who's really, really sick, who's done an elimination diet, they've discovered that wheat eliminates the thing, but in order to test them for celiac, you now need them to eat wheat for two weeks straight so they can get mm. tested for an antibody. And I know a lot of people who doctors just won't do that for. Right. So for me, I spent most of my childhood going to school being sick in the morning because I'd eat toast for breakfast and go to school. And like my parents always thought, oh, well, you don't like school. It's psychosomatic. Because I would be sick every morning. Um, I had migraines. I had chronic kidney stones since I was 19. Oh I just had all of these things that were going on. Right. I, my skin wasn't good. Um, I, you know, it just was like all of these things. Everything. Right. But we don't look at things from a holistic perspective. No. We think of things very symptomatically. We go, oh, she gets kidney stones. She should drink more water and we'll give her painkillers every time she gets a kidney stone. And that's like how we think of things. Right. As opposed to going, well, why is an otherwise healthy 19-year-old getting kidney stones several times a year and having surgery and having to go in and having these things done? Why does she also get migraines? Why is she sick every morning when she goes to school? We don't think about those things. Hi, this is Christy. I just want to say that we here at Radiate Wellness hope you're enjoying this podcast. It's free to you, and we hope that you find it informative and inspirational. Heck, even fun. We have just three small asks of you to help us radiate growth. First, please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. That way, you'll receive a notification every time that we have a new podcast episode out. Next, please give us a thumbs up a like, or a five-star review. If you're feeling inspired, a positive review wouldn't hurt. These two small things will help others find us when they're searching for great podcasts. Finally, please tell your friends about the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Better yet, show them how to find us and how to subscribe. If everyone did that, we would double our audience. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. I also think... There's certain conversations people don't want to have. Really? Um, you know, I remember the first time I went to my doctor and told him that I felt like I had IBS, and it was almost like he looked at me like I was, like, gross, you know? <laughs> I was like, you're my doctor. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that they've got, like, stomach cramps or, like, how food's affecting them, right? So then those conversations aren't being brought up. We're, like, afraid to talk to our doctors about health problems. I think women have that problem, I think, 
on, on one in one way, and I think men have that problem in another way, you know. Um, but people tend to just live with chronic illness. Yeah. And I spent most of my life just thinking, this is how I feel. This is my normal. Right. And at one point, I remember thinking, does everybody go to work feeling this awful? And just being like, I, I get, this is my normal. This is right. what I have to deal with. Um, and then one summer, um, I stopped being able to swallow. I couldn't get down water. I couldn't get down food. Your nothing. esophagus stopped working. It just stopped working. Um, wow. And I was in Los Angeles at the time. I'd gone to Cedar sinai which is like one of the best hospitals. It was right. over a weekend. And they told me I was having a panic attack. They gave me anti-anxiety medicine and oh sent me home. Oh, my gosh. So by Monday, I hadn't eaten anything. Right. And I went back. And or they drunk were, anything. Yeah, no. I was, like, dehydrated, wasn't doing well, was, like, in a bad state. And they were, like, okay, now we're taking it seriously. So they started to do all these different tests. They did um, an endoscopy. They did um, barium swallow tests, which are basically, like, where they track what the muscles are doing. They tried to do a couple other motility tests, which, like, nobody ever has to want. I mean, one of them was, like, you swallow a sensor through your nose. It's bad. Like, yeah, that stuff is it's terrible. It's not fun. No. So I, I mean, it was, an, it was an awful time. And I was, like, okay, I need to figure this out. I started, like, seeing a therapist, going to an acupuncturist, going to see my doctor, going in for IV fluids regularly. Yeah. And at the time... I was very overweight and I started to lose weight really quickly, <laughs> as one would. Um, I feel like in some ways my health wasn't regarded because I was someone who was overweight. And I think this is a big problem that we have as a society because everyone told me how healthy I looked. Everyone was telling me, oh, good for you, you're losing weight, you look great. Um, and my friends that were the closest to me saw how bad it was, how I was weak how I was scared I was going to pass out on my way to work if I had to drive myself in. Um, I was trying to consume little tiny quantities of as high calorie food as I possibly could because I had to get some kind of energy in my body. Um, and it was a really interesting time in my life because I had everybody over here going like, you look so healthy. <laughs> and me being over here like, because I'm dying. And it's interesting because I've heard this from other people who've been in that same position where, you know, we have a tendency to look at people and we live in this society that has these judgments about weight. And, and so our response to it is like, you're thin, you must be healthy. Right. As opposed to like, oh, you're you're dying, so you're losing weight, <laughs> right? So we need to like, we need that's a whole we discussion we need to think it. about, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was actually so my physician at Cedar Sinai was great. He was very like, I can see these problems happening. I'm not sure how to fix them because. I'm very reactive in weird ways to medication. Right, counterintuitive in yeah. different ways. Yeah. yeah, so they would give me something like Prilosec and be like, this should help. And then yes. I would be like, like it made it worse, you know? Yes. And so I was like seeing my, seeing a friend of mine who was an acupuncturist, an acupuncturist and I was like, what am I supposed to do? And she was like, well, you need to do an elimination diet. This is why I said to you, like, doctors don't think about nutrition, right? No, really so I'm going to my doctor going, I can't swallow, I can't eat, and nobody's talking to me about what I'm eating. Right. Everybody's just talking to me about what kind of medication I can put in my body. Yeah. And then I had another friend who was like, I go to this amazing naturopath, this guy Rich Clayton in L.A., and she was like, go see this guy. She's like, I've been going to him with my kid. And, like, the things that start to happen to your body when you're having, like, malnutrition, it's essentially, like, the same thing that happens to you when you're bulimic. 
you know? I started to lose tooth enamel. Um, you know, my hair was thinner. Like, I was having all of these problems and couldn't get anyone to solve it and thought, okay, I'm just going to die. Like, that's what's going to happen. Because nobody can figure this out. Right. And it was my acupuncturist who was like, do an elimination diet. Like, <laughs> just, just, like, you know, slowly introduce these things. When you're fine and you don't have those things, then that's going to be it. And I, you know, and I was talking to my doctor about it at the same time, and he's like, well, I think you have what's the symptoms of undiagnosed celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease. So your body is attacking itself when you consume wheat. He was like, from all of the symptoms you have, that is what I believe to be your diagnosis. But he was like, but in order for me to get a blood test to confirm that, I would have to have you eat wheat. I can't do that without risking your health. And so, you know, I've been vegetarian my whole life, so it wasn't like I had to eliminate that at all. But I definitely was like, okay, so this is the... Now, and the funny thing about being gluten-free is when you first go gluten-free, at least for me, when I first went gluten-free, I just wasn't, like, thinking all the time about it. So I was like, I think I was still getting trace amounts of gluten because I was, like, consuming things, but I was in a kitchen where somebody else wasn't, you know, and I just was, like, I was still eating out, but just not eating things that were gluten-free, and was, like, that's what I was doing. Right. Um, and so I did that for years, and then when I decided I was going to get pregnant, I stopped, couldn't, like, I wouldn't eat out, I'd only eat things that I would cook. Um, you know, the downside of that was that, like, so the upside was that I got a lot healthier. The downside was I gained some of that weight back. <laughs> but... You know, but it also is what allowed me to have my daughter and have a successful pregnancy right. without any problem. Yeah, you can't be pregnant when you're not healthy. Right. Right. No, that's... Um, and your story, I think, is pretty common. That yeah. Very yeah. common. And I mean, you know, it's interesting being in a profession where I do this because people want to talk to people yeah. about what they've been through. And so I'll have a lot of customers who come in and they'll tell me their stories and like... The parallels and the similarities in people's stories are just like, oh, my man, you know? Yes. And I'm like, or how many of them have gone, whoa, you too? You know, yeah. they have those same things. And you know, the most frustrating part is when you have doctors who say to you, oh, I've never heard of that. Or, oh, that doesn't. And then I start to talk to all these other people who've had these same experiences. And I right. go, well, that just can't be the case. You know, right. exactly. There's got to be something to this. Yeah. Right? And doctors say, well, the literature, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, the literature does not live in my gut. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, the thing is, it's like, the thing with the thing with celiac disease is, because it's an autoimmune disease, it's going to impact everyone differently. Yes. And so there's going to be certain similarities, like digestive issues or bloating or joint problems, you know, those type of things. Brain fog. Brain fog, yeah. But then, like, I had a friend who... She couldn't get pregnant for years. She couldn't get pregnant. She kept having miscarriages. Mm. And one of the number one symptoms in women is infertility issues. Yep. Well, as soon as she went gluten-free, wow. she was in her 40s. She had already adopted a child and accidentally got pregnant. <laughs> Because, and never put two and two together there, by the way. It was just like, wait, oh, wait a minute. And it's like... At no point were the doctors that she was working with trying to get pregnant, did they ever say to her, oh, well, wait a minute, let's look at why your body is attacking you. Right, you've got inflammation in your body, let's get to the mm -hmm. root of that. And instead of looking at that, they were addressing it as the symptom. Exactly. There miscarriages, there must be something with the reproductive we issues. Clomid. We do an endoscopy, mm -hmm. I mean, we're not an endoscopy, we do, you know, laparoscopy, we do this and that and that. Mm -hmm. 
but we don't look at the underlying mm-hmm. issue. And I mean, like, to me, that was so heartbreaking that she had to spend so many years going through that. Like, how beautiful that she then had her baby and had that experience, but... Mm-hmm. Like, how ironic that she was, like, at an age when a lot of people would think, like, oh, you're, you're lower fertility, and that's when she got pregnant. And imagine if she had known that 10 years earlier. Yeah. Absolutely. All the heartbreak that could have prevented her. But we don't think about those things. And I think that's why it's important for people to share their stories, because then other people can maybe identify themselves in those stories mm-hmm. and say, oh, like, I was doing this, and then... You know, <laughs> and this is how I found yeah. out, and this is how it's affecting me. Oh, it can affect you like that too. So maybe I should look into it. And that's why I love this place because you can go to any coffee shop and you can find something that's gluten free. You know, there are there are people in town who are supplying coffee shops and restaurants and everything. Mm-hmm. But to have some place that is dedicated. Well, I mean, one of the most that's important hard. things about being dedicated because I get a lot of queries from people wanting to do wholesale from me, and sure. I always tell them no. Because part of the issue with dedicated is, I know my stuff is gluten-free. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that cross-contamination is a huge issue. Yes. And handling a product once it exits my doors can be a huge issue. Absolutely. So if somebody says to me, okay, well, I want to get you know two dozen cupcakes to sell in my shop. Well, okay, but are you using dedicated cases? Um, is all your staff trained to know that they have to change their gloves when they touch things? Are these things going to be sold only in packages so that nobody's ever going to be touching them? And who's touching the outside of the packages and what have they touched it? Where has it been stored next to? I mean, for people who are really sensitive, those mm-hmm. things matter. <laughs> they matter a lot. Um, and so, you know, just having a, you know, for me, I personally think, and there's a lot of other people who are gluten-free that feel the same way as me, it can be really infuriating to see other people advertising things as gluten-free when you're like, it's not. If there's any chance that there is contamination there, if you are risking someone else's health, it's not gluten-free. Um, in the United States, the FDA requires that things can only be labeled gluten-free if they're under 20 parts per million. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the problem with that is that, for one, restaurants aren't really, like restaurants and coffee shops, they're not over, mm-hmm. there's no oversight on that whatsoever. No. Um, there's also, <laughs> in the FDA labeling, there is a permissible margin of error on things as well so even if you say something's 20 million you know 20 parts per million and someone messes up on it like that's kind of okay I mean the the FDA has allowed people to package things that have wheat blatantly as ingredients as gluten-free because they will test it under 20 parts per million and in other countries they have five parts per million as their standard so there's also a differentiation in terms of like what it is right then you also have to think about things like if there's a molecule, like, say, for example, you put a piece of toast, and it's a gluten-free piece of bread, but you put it into a toaster, and then you take that bread out, and you test it. Well, one part didn't touch that piece of thing, but some other part of it might have 100 parts per million, while another part of it's going to have zero parts per million. So how are you doing your testing to determine what your parts per million are? That's a very good point. And so there's so many issues there with where and how cross-contamination can occur. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, like, as chefs, we have to think about that. And we have to think about the fact that, like, gluten-free-ish and gluten-friendly are kind of like, they're just, like, marketing buzzwords, but they don't mean anything to someone who has a medical issue. Absolutely. Um, And so, like, I take what I do very passionately because, you know, I'll have, like, little kids that come in here, and they're a little nervous. And they'll be like, well, 
is this safe? Can I eat this? Because, you know, imagine being like an, a 10-year-old kid who, you know, knows that they're going to have stomach cramps and be in pain for weeks if somebody mishandles something, right? And like, most of the time, if you're not somebody who deals with that in your personal life, you just don't, you don't think about it. Right. It's just not something that's in the present of your mind. And I'm somebody who doesn't eat out. Right. So it's definitely in the present of my mind. <laughs> you don't have to think yeah. about it. Absolutely. I was at a, it was a smaller restaurant owned by a major res restaurateur here in Kansas City, and I got slipped uh, flour tortillas instead of gluten, or instead of uh, corn tortillas. I was sick for weeks, and the restaurateur said, well, we didn't get our shipment. Sorry. Yeah. And, you know, that's just not acceptable for somebody yeah. who's really got a medical issue. So if somebody does, like somebody's listening to this and they've not, um, like they know that they can't handle gluten, but accidentally they get some, mm -hmm. is there a good rescue remedy that you know of? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's different for everybody because everybody's symptoms are going to be different. They are. Um, I personally... Um, because I live in a home where not everybody is gluten-free. Now, we have dedicated parts of our kitchen, right? So, like, sure. like, my folks have, like, this is our counter and that's your counter. And that's kind of, and I have dedicated silverware and dedicated flatware. And we've kind of figured out a way to manage that. But, you know, we've had a peanut butter incident, you know, where somebody, you know, dips a knife in something, spears, and then, you know, two seconds later, I'm sick. And um, I've found um, charcoal is really great. It's not going to get rid of the symptoms, right? But I think it definitely has helped me to get through the symptoms faster. That's um, wonderful. Yeah, so I just get like a charcoal activated. It's a like a, it's an organic activated charcoal that's made from coconut, mm -hmm. um, and I'll just like mix that into a drink because it doesn't taste like anything. Okay, it's just good. black and it doesn't taste like anything. It's a tiny bit gritty if you use a lot of it, mm -hmm. but you know, like I use it in my baking because it's pretty. So I do use it like regularly <laughs> as a functional thing. But in terms of like, now, you don't want to be consuming activated charcoal on a regular basis because it's a detoxifier that just detoxes everything. Everything. So if you do it on a regular basis, you will be stripping yourself of nutrients that you need. But if you've been glutened, I find two things. You want to replenish your biogenome and you want to get rid of whatever was crappy in you. So you can consume charcoal and that's going to help detoxify you. And then I've found like a really good kombucha is really helpful. Um, I'm one of those weird people who cannot tolerate kombucha. I drink it and I feel like I'm drunk. <laughs> I know. You're getting the wrong one because there are ones with alcohol. <laughs> no, this is pretty much any kombucha I've tried and I feel like I'm well, drunk. Well, okay, so you know, it's interesting. I, when I was in LA and I first like started, I started selling at farmer's markets at like the Beverly Hills um, farmer's market and my neighbors were now a nationally successful company called Health Aid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they were like just a like start out couple. Yeah, yeah. And they were right next to me, and I never had kombucha. And one morning I came in, and I was like, I'm so sluggish because I'm like not a morning person. And I let myself in to like start selling stuff at the farmer's market. And she says to me, Drink a shot glass of this. Mm -hmm. She was like, Don't drink more than that. You haven't had it. Like, if you haven't had it before, right. your body has to adjust it. It's got really high levels of B vitamin in it, and it can do what you're talking about. It'll zip you. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, so now I just get, like, really good kombucha. Mm -hmm. I won't get, like, the stuff that's basically just soda. Um, and I'll just drink a few tablespoons of it. Yeah. Because it replenishes my go. body. Right. Doesn't do, yeah, I wouldn't drink, like, a bottle of it. <laughs> <laughs> you 
yeah. I'm thinking, okay, well, this went, maybe this will be okay. Maybe this will be all right. All right. No. I'm like, well, no, I can't you know, drive. I get, like, the ginger lemon one, which is pretty, like, hot, too. Yes, so I it's like, ginger. I'll just drink, like, a little shot of it. And yeah. that's, like, enough to kind of, like, help my stomach get my back to where it needs to be. Good. And the charcoal really helps. I mean, I'm still going to deal with brain fog and, like, fatigue and some pain. Yes. But at least I can kind of get myself through it a little faster. Right. But right. to be honest with you... You know, I'm so strict about it that, you know, the few times that I've been glutened, it was so obvious what the source of it was because it was like somebody, you know, it was like, darn it, that peanut butter wasn't open before and now it is and I just got sick five minutes later because for me, my reaction happens really quick. You, exactly, and that's hard to understand about allergies because there's the immediate reaction and then there's delayed reaction. If you have delayed reaction, you don't know what you've eaten that right. could cause a problem. Well, and so like the difference too, though, is that gluten's not an allergy because allergies are histamine reactions. True, true, true. Um, Sensitivity. And so because depending on what your reaction, like depending on if you have an autoimmune, because mm-hmm. there's different things. Like some people have gluten sensitivity mm-hmm. and some people have wheat allergies, which is pretty rare, but some people can have it. And then you've got people who have celiac, and that's not only immune reaction. And all of those are going to be different responses. Um, and, like, you know, for me, it's like immediate bloating. Like, right. like I eat something, and I'm like, well, I'm and pregnant again. Well, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, and I was like, okay, well, that happened, you know. Um, but I try to be so careful about things. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like really militant about it, which like I have to be because I own a business. So like, yes. you know, all the people who come in and they're like, you know, I have tea. I'm like, really? Where is it processed? Where does it come from? What are you doing? What's the, you know, I need to know like spices. Oh, okay. Is it labeled gluten free? Is it tested? Right. Where is it being manufactured? How's it packaged? Vendors coming in and selling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like you know, people, you know, people kind of immediately go, yeah, that's gluten free without thinking about it. Sure. Because they think just because it doesn't have a gluten ingredient in it, that makes it gluten free, and that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> that's right. You know, and so you kind of like, in terms of home use, you have to kind of think the same way too. Like, mm-hmm. if you're living with people who aren't gluten free. You have to be like on it all the time to make sure that somebody's not done something that's gonna make you sick. Have to be like I can't even tell you how many times I've opened up the fridge and there'll be like a peanut butter with a jar that says not gluten free and I'm like, well, I know what happened there. (laughs) It's just like now everybody's learned. Okay, if you stuck your knife in there and then wiped it, then nope, that's no longer gluten free. You know, can't do that. Can't do that. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about gluten free baking because that is an art form. Mm Yeah, I've tried it on at home, and it's not as easy as you would think. It's not just like you take your flour and you substitute it for, you know, you yeah, take it's not, not one for one, yeah. No, it's really not. So what types of tricks do we need to know about gluten-free bacon if we're trying it at home? Um, I mean, I think the thing is not all grains are made equal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll have people who sometimes come in and they'll be like, what can I replace for my gluten-free? Well, there isn't an answer to that. It's really going to depend on individual recipes, what you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, when I'm baking things, some things work well with white rice flour, and then some things work well with brown rice flour, and some things work well with teff and sorghum. And then what are they interacting with? Are they interacting with yeast? Are they interacting with baking soda? You know, there's so many different variables there. Um, I think with gluten-free baking, for me, the one rule is it's never one flour. <laughs> you can't just if you have to mix it if you just stick like brown rice flour into something it's it's going to taste like chalky if you just throw a bunch of sorghum into something it's going to be really dense 
Right. Um, I also find, kind of in general, that gluten-free flours tend to absorb more liquid than wheat does. Sure. So if you're trying to take a recipe and make it gluten-free, mm -hmm. you also have to take into consideration, like, Add more liquid. Yeah, like are you going to add more liquid right. or are you going to add less flour, you know, and how you approach that because if I follow a recipe like to the T and I go, okay, this one, I'm just going to use these flour blends and put them in, I can't use the same ratio. Mm -hmm. um, I also think a lot of times people will ask me about like, oh, well, what's your substitution for this? And I think you can't think that way. I think you just have to think of it as its own independent recipe, you know, because I'll always have people who say to me, well, what do you use in place of eggs? Well, I don't use anything in place of eggs. My recipes don't contain eggs. Right. Um, when and you need so, something to bind, and you need a leavening. Right, but like not everything, even things that would, you know, when you make pie crust, there's no eggs in it. Right. Right? Exactly. So like, <laughs> you know, not every recipe requires an egg. Not every, and so for me, I don't, I don't think that way. I just think of it as like, okay, this is what I use to make a good cake. I don't think of it as, I'm going to put this in in place of this. And do you devise your own recipes then for the creations that you make here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, everything's from yeah, everything is something that I from know, scratch it and make from scratch. Yeah, which brings me to another topic is that yeah. you've written cookbooks. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, one of them is on our Goodreads page. It's a holiday cookbook. Mm -hmm. What's the full title of that? Um, let's see. It's like gluten free and vegan cooking for the holidays. I believe so it's like yeah. Uh, my, the series of books that I have is called Gluten Free Cooking for Everyone. Yes, um, and yes, then yes, yes. I have three books that are under that, and then the most recent one that I did was Gluten Free and Vegan, and I think it's like Gluten Free and Vegan Cooking for the Holiday Table or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, the first cookbook that I did, it's funny because I'm vegetarian, but the first cookbook I did, I was like, well, it needs to be accessible, I need it to be gluten free and not necessarily vegetarian and all this kind of stuff, and you know, it was a very popular book, but... It's not like I ever tasted any of the recipes that weren't vegan, so it was more like so I you had nothing to compare. Well, I have friends over and be like, "Here, try this. What do you think?" You know, and like that was how I did that. So then, when I did my most recent cookbook, I was like, "Well, I just moved out here. I had a baby. I was at home, and I was like very restless. And I was like, well, what am I going to do?'" And I was like, "I need to write another cookbook." And so I was like, "Well, you know, holiday cookbooks are important because." Holidays are a very social time, and food is the thing that brings us all together at the holidays. It really is. And so when you have people who can't participate in that aspect of, like, of like socialization and, like, community socialization, it's very isolating. So being able to create very easy recipes that, you know, you can make and bring to somebody's house or they can make and invite you over, I think is, is a really good way to sort of, like, cross that divide. Right, yeah. right, absolutely, because it is so social. I know that when I go to visit my folks up in Idaho, mm -hmm. um, they say, oh, we'll get some gluten-free things, but they're just very standard kind of pat things, and it's mm -hmm. not, it would be really nice. I usually have to make my own, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah. it would be kind of nice to have a, a cookbook. Um, so you've got the holiday cookbook, you've got a kid's cookbook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah. a kid's cookbook. What makes it a kid's cookbook? So it's a, it's really simple recipes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's for kids to make themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's for kids to make themselves, and, you know, there's a few places where I'll indicate, like, get some adult supervision for this part, but there's a lot of things that don't involve cooking. There's a lot of things that don't really involve cutting or using sharp knives. I try to keep things relatively simple, a lot of just, like, stirring it with a spoon kind of thing. Um, And I I try to make the recipes things that I thought would be kid-friendly, and I also created sections where kids could write their own notes about like well I like it with this or I want to add it this way because I think one of the problems with cooking is that we people feel overwhelmed at the idea of cooking for themselves at home because they think they have to follow a recipe every time yeah and like I spend so much money when I follow a recipe it's like it's like I'm like oh now I need to go to the grocery store and buy these 50 things I don't have at home just to make this recipe and like instead of us thinking about food and thinking about cooking as like a skill that you just overall that you can learn it overall and so all of the recipes that I have in this cookbook are very open to adaptation mm-hmm. because I think it's important for kids to learn from a young age how to think about food and to think about like what do I like what do I want to put into this you know um, I think kids are, are much more open-minded eaters than we give them credit for because we think well if I just give them this one thing and they eat that all the time that's what I should give them but I think that if you give them a certain amount of autonomy and you involve them in the creation process, they like to be able to make it. Yeah, too. they really do. They would be more likely to eat something they made. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my daughter's two, and I already bring her into the kitchen with me, and she helps out. You know, she eats anything. <laughs> you know, she's all about it. Yeah. You know? Oh, that is wonderful. Well, is there anything else that we need to know about? gluten-free baking, about, you know, coming to a shop like this, anything for, like, maybe gluten-free people who are just getting started, perhaps? Well, I mean, I think it can be pretty overwhelming, I think, when you first go gluten-free. Oh, I remember I I had a meltdown. Yeah, I think that that can be really frustrating. I think that we're really fortunate because we live in a time where there's more options. I mean, I remember when I first went gluten-free, there was just nothing out there. It was just, like, it was what it was. I think... First of all, learn how to love your own cooking is a really important part of it, and not to be overwhelmed by it, and not to think that every time you cook something, it has to be some master meal. You can do things that are simple and, you know, that are nourishing, and that's fine. And gluten-free doesn't necessarily have to mean baking. No, 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 anything. I mean, you know, one of my favorite meals is making lettuce wraps, and it's like, you know. There's nothing gluten about that. No, (laughs) absolutely not. So it's like, you know. Just sort of think about those things because there's things that are totally gluten free that you can make at home that you just don't even always think about, like tacos. <laughs> like those are gluten free. <laughs> those are really easy to make. You know, pastas now they have great pasta out there. They really do. Yeah, I mean it used to be bad too. Like I remember oh, when I first yeah. went gluten free, it was like I guess, but now it's like you know you can't tell the difference with a lot of them. You know, and they're not that expensive. Like Trader Joe's has great options for gluten free things, and yeah, I mean I think the thing is to like. Stop, not be overwhelmed, and to just be like, okay, I just really smooth the music on this whole time. <laughs> okay, I just was like, oh, we wanted to, maybe I should have turned that off, sorry. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, just don't get overwhelmed. Just don't get overwhelmed by things, because I think that that's, like, the first thing is that, you know, I've even known people who are like, I was told to be gluten-free, but I just couldn't handle it, so I didn't, and I'm like, what? what? You know, like, your health is suffering from that, you know, and, like, And also, I think the other thing is, it's important too to mention, is that if you have gone to your doctor and they've told you that you have an autoimmune disease, but you feel like you're not symptomatic, not everyone is symptomatic. 
Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's not doing long-term damage to your body. That's a good point. Um, and so you have to take those things really seriously as well, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I also think it's fine to, like, reach out to people. I can't even tell you how many times, like, people have come in and, like, look, I don't do health food. I make cupcakes. But, like... And I mean, all people come in like, this is healthy for me, right? I'm like, no, there's sugar in it. It's not healthy. It's, it's, yeah, it's still it's still a cupcake, you know? But I always tell people, email me, reach out, because I get a lot of people who come in and feel overwhelmed because their kid has been, you know, has to be gluten-free, or, you know, some family member has to be gluten-free, and they're really upset about it. And I'm like, that's fine. Reach out to me. Let me know. I'm always happy to tell you the cheapest places to find things, the easiest ways to find things, make some meal suggestions. People around you who are gluten-free will be happy to help you because they've been there and they will be more than happy to tell you how to do things so that you don't have to go through what they did on that journey. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it has been so enlightening to talk to you and find out more about the process, more about your journey. Um, I absolutely love this place. It's cute as heck. It's just adorable. Um, and such yummy, yummy stuff. It is wonderful. So thank you so much for talking with me. If somebody wanted to find out, maybe reach out to you by email, order a custom order, mm-hmm. something like that, how would they reach you? On one website, littlestbakeshop.com, and that's probably the easiest got a way to... contact form. Yeah, there's a contact form on there. It's got our hours on there. It's got our location. You can see examples of the things we do. We're on social media, on Instagram and Facebook, so it's really easy to, like see what we have going on in the shop, see what types of events are coming up. Um, and I'm always happy to respond to people's emails if they have questions Oh, as well. that's wonderful. So littlestbakeshop.com. You're located on 59th Street and Morningside in the Kansas City uh, area. 59th and Holmes. 59th and Holmes. Thank mm-hmm. you. 59th and Holmes in the Morningside shops in Kansas City. Um, so thank you so much. I will. De- it's too bad you're closed today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be in. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.